What is a monument, famous monument, that you've been desiring to see all your life? Livia? The Eiffel Tower. Emma Kate? Hmm. She says, what's a monument? Uh, anybody else? Help me out here, Clayton. The Statue of Liberty. You know what? That was mine when I was your age. I always wanted to see the Statue of Liberty. So uh, if my clicker's working, if it's working, I'll bring it up there. There it is. There's the Statue of Liberty. Now, I have to confess, though. I finally got to see the Statue of Liberty about five years ago. And I was so excited. My dad and I were in New York for a conference. And we decided to take some time away to go and see some sights. And so we got on a ferry and rode out to see the Statue of Liberty. And I was a little bit disappointed. Okay? It was a little underwhelming. You see it, and I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's cool. It's big, but it didn't take my breath away like you expect it to. You know, you see all the pictures and, and you see all the helicopter shots of the Statue of Liberty. And I was just expecting to be blown away when I beheld the Statue of Liberty. And I, I wasn't. I mean, it was, it was cool. Clayton, you still want to see it, buddy. I don't want to crush your dreams here. Okay? So it's, it's really neat. But it was just it wasn't as impressive as I thought it would be. I've heard other people say the same thing about things like, um, well, Mount Rushmore. You know, it's not nearly as massive as we thought it was going to be. Or even the Alamo. It's just like this little bitty building. And, you know, I think that's what happens sometimes. We get this expectation in us. And when we finally behold the real thing, we're a little bit disappointed. Okay, Stone Mountain for me. I mean, when we came to Georgia... A couple picked us up from the airport, and we were driving at night, and this lady couldn't stop talking about Stone Mountain. We'd never heard of it before. And she's kind of, oh, you got, and it's right there. It's pitch black. We can't see anything. It's right, it's, it's right there. It's just, it'll be there tomorrow when you see it. And she just kept going on and on about Stone Mountain. Heather, you remember, I can't remember her name even, but she kept talking, and she was talking about this big carving on the side. Oh, wow, great. And when I finally saw Stone Mountain, I was actually impressed with the big piece of rock sticking out of the ground, but the statue... I mean, the, the carving was, again, just a little bit underwhelming to me. You know, it's just, it seems like a half-done statue to me. Okay, it's just stuck right there. I wasn't that impressed. Now, the mountain itself was, was pretty impressive. As a matter of fact, I think when we behold the things that God has done, not necessarily the things that man has made, we're much more impressed, aren't we? Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, those things impress us much more. What I want us to see this morning is that Israel had been waiting. They had been waiting for the lamb. A final sacrificial lamb that would deal with sin once for all. And the lamb finally comes on the scene. And here comes John saying, behold, the lamb of God. And what I want us to do this morning is behold the Lamb of God. Because our sin, our flesh, and the world would say it's not that impressive. It's not much. Behold the Lamb. This Jesus guy, good guy, but not that much. Not that impressive. But the Scriptures tell us otherwise. And for those who have been born again, your heart testifies otherwise that this is 
an amazing lamb to behold. And so this morning, I want us to think about this phrase primarily, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in order to get there, we need to set the stage a little bit here. We need to talk about what's happening, when this happened. Well, first of all, this story today happens right after the baptism and the temptation of Jesus. We know that because John the Baptist refers to here in this text that the way he came to know who Christ was was when he saw the Spirit descend upon him. So John the Baptist has already witnessed the, the baptism, so we know that already happened. And we also know from Scripture that the temptations were immediately following the baptism. So the timeline here seems to suggest that Jesus, after his baptism, comes back to where John was baptizing, and we have this happening here in John chapter 1. Now what's going on here? John's gospel almost is constructed like a legal case. He sets out to prove who Jesus is, and he wants us to believe in this Jesus. John states that to be his aim in John chapter 20, verse 31. And now, in order to make his legal case, he begins to set up witnesses. And the first witness that John the Apostle brings to the stand is John the Baptist. John 1, 19, the very first verse here in our text today, says this is the testimony of John. This word testimony was a, a legal term. It's a technical legal term. It's repeated throughout this first paragraph and throughout John's whole gospel narrative. The idea here is that we're hearing from a first-hand witness of who this Jesus really is. And that we should believe the testimony about who this Jesus really is. So this is John's testimony to the world. And it's almost as if John himself is on a witness stand here for he begins to be cross-examined by some people from the Pharisees, doesn't he? The Pharisees viewed themselves as sort of the keepers of all things religious. And so they demanded to know why he was baptizing, that he wanted him to explain himself. So they sent out some guys to ask him if, if he was the Messiah. Are you the Christ? Christ, Messiah, it's the same word. Are you the Messiah? Now, it wasn't uncommon in those days for people to come around and claim that they were the Messiah. It happened a lot during that um, time in history. So they ask him, are you the Messiah? He says, no. So they want to know if he was Elijah, because they expected Elijah to return from the dead before the Messiah came. And, and John says, no. So they wanted to know if he was the prophet. And they're referring here to Deuteronomy 18, where God had prophesied he would send another prophet like Moses to Israel. And yet again, John says, no. The first thing I want us to notice here is that John had every opportunity here to sort of set the stage for himself. He can claim some pretty good things about himself here. He can draw a lot of attention to himself. Here's his opportunity for celebrity, for fame. But the reason John words it this way in verse 20, he says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It almost sounds repetitive. He confessed and he did not deny, but he confessed what? I am not the Christ. He wanted to make it very clear. I am not the Christ. You see, John had an opportunity here. The Pharisees, they were the elite. They were the powerful. He has an opportunity to sort of get in with the, the, the good crowd here, the popular, the big, the powerful crowd, and he doesn't do it. Human nature tells us to make much of ourselves. Human nature was telling John, make much of yourself. But John refused because of two things. First of all, he knew what his mission was, and his mission was to make straight the way of the Lord. We talked about that when we looked at the baptism. It's from Isaiah 43 that he quotes. 
This was his sole task. This was his mission. To make people ready for the Lord. And if you go to Isaiah, Lord is in all caps. And if Lord is in all caps, it means Yahweh. He's to make the way for God himself to come onto the scene. His mission doesn't give him room to go around and start making his own way. His mission keeps him humble. But but even more than that, first of all, he knows his mission. But even more than that, he knows who he was on mission for. And that keeps him humble. Verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In light of the perfection of the one that he, for whom he was preparing the way, he had no room to boast about himself or to make much of his ministry. John cares not one little bit about his own reputation, who he is, He knows his whole life exists to point to a greater one. His whole ministry exists to proclaim the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He'll later say that in John 3, verse 30, one of my favorite verses. If you're in ministry, you got to have this one memorized. This is what John said. He, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. And that sums up his whole ministry right there because pretty much after John 3.30, you don't hear about John the Baptist anymore. He decreases very quickly. Matter of fact, he loses his head pretty quickly after that as well. He decreases. His ministry dries up. His time on this earth disappears. I'm concerned I'm so concerned. Why is there such a lack of humility in the church today? Across the whole span of the church, there seems to be a lack of humility, but especially right here in the pulpit. Does that not concern you about the state of the American church when we see such a lack of humility in the pulpit today? I think it's because we live in an age of celebrity. Everyone can put, make their own blog. Everyone can make their own Facebook page. Everyone can make whatever they want to do to celebrate themselves. And we feel the pool, don't we? I feel it. I'm not a celebrity pastor. I've got a tiny little church. But I feel the pool. I feel the pool when I see how many people have been listening to our podcast. Oh, there's that little tug there that says, man you got to make yourself known. But are you kidding me? Two people listened to the podcast last week? Come on, Steve. What's wrong with you? I feel the pull because of the culture we live in. Paul says that knowledge puffs up. And he warned Timothy not to ordain young Christians into the ministry because he was afraid they would get puffed up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Pride is the great destroyer of Christian ministry. Pride is the great destroyer of the church. What's the solution? Well, it's to be like John is here. Number one, recognize the weight of our task. I'm not here to make me known. I'm here to make Christ known. That is a heavy task. The weight of that task alone should cause humility. It's too important for me to spend any time trying to make much of myself. And secondly... As John did, we need to keep our eyes on the majestic glory of whom it is that we are talking about, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We need to really see and savor him. Part of the reason we're doing this series 
if see and savor does anything, it should cut pride out of your life. This series should cut pride out of our lives. We should see how unworthy we are to even untie the straps of our Lord's sandals. So my prayer, and I hope your prayer, is that the Lord will keep us holy and humble. And keep the pastors of America's churches humble. Make them humble. God has a way of bringing down the proud, doesn't he? Enforcing humility upon pastors who think much of themselves. I pray that our church will escape this culture of celebrity pastors that we're so in love with. The Apostle Paul, he refused to boast in his ministry. He refused to boast in his ministry. He boasted only in the cross. We sang about that when we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We boast only in the cross. And we are told in scriptures of only one man who was famous for his preaching. Now I'm sure Paul was pretty well known, but Paul even talks about how he wasn't an eloquent preacher. Now there's one person though that said in the scriptures that says, the brother who's famous for his preaching. But I think it's very interesting that scripture never gives us his name. For a reason. We're never told who the brother is that's famous for his preaching. We know it's not Paul. And people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out who that was. Apollos, maybe? I don't know. It doesn't matter. I think God left the blank unfilled for a reason. The person who's famous for his preaching, you don't need to know who he was. You just need to know who he's preaching about. Well, we see here with John a man who cares not about pointing to himself, but instead he points to Jesus Christ saying, Behold, observe, look at, witness, gaze upon, contemplate, pay attention to Jesus. So we see here the very next day after these first uh, first section of the scripture here, uh, like in a courtroom scene, have you ever seen the courtroom dramas where the, the lawyer comes up and says, you know, do you see that person, whoever they're talking about, sitting in the courtroom today? And the person sitting in the witness stand will say, yes, that's them right over there. And will point their finger to the person and they'll say, let the court note that so-and-so pointed out the defendant or whatever. Am I alone? Have you all seen that in a courtroom drama? Okay. That's like what's happening here. This is the courtroom and John, Jesus has come on the scene and he's saying, right there, that's him. The guy I was talking about yesterday, that's him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, John speaking here, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So, I want us to look at a few things here, a couple of things first, and then we're really going to focus on, on this phrase, behold the Lamb of God. First of all, I'll bring up the first point here, guys. John wants us to behold the supreme nature of Christ. John wants us to behold the supreme nature of Christ. When he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, this is John saying that Jesus, number one, is a man, but also He's the highest ranking man that's ever lived. Here comes a man unlike any other man. He is supreme. He wants us to see the supreme nature of Christ. Now even the hardened skeptic today will recognize or admit that there's no other person in history that has lived who's had as great an impact on world history than Jesus Christ. Even an atheist will admit that. Because timeline, time itself has been very much literally divided by his life. We have A.D., we have B.C. 
And so even the hardened skeptic will say, okay, I agree. Jesus Christ was a spectacular man. He did some amazing things. And perhaps there's been no other man in history that has walked the face of the earth that has done things like, like he did. And this is part of John's testimony. And this is the part of John's testimony that's easy for the world to digest. If that's all we preach at Harbin's, we will have a very full house. Because everyone likes to talk about Jesus was just a good man, philosopher, great teacher. But John doesn't stop just saying that Jesus ranks above all other men. He goes on, he says, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now what does John mean when he says because he was before me? What does that mean? Well, we know John's not speaking of birth order because John was born before Jesus was born. And we know not, he's not talking about the chronology of their ministry timelines because John began his ministry before Jesus began his earthly ministry. So what is John referring to? He's referring to the pre-existent nature of Christ. He's referring to the fact that Christ is not only a man, that he is God. He is divine. Jesus was before John because he's the God-man. He's the Word made flesh who in the beginning was with God and was God and through him all things were made. That's what John's wanting us to see when he says, this is one who came before me, who was before me. He doesn't say he came before me. He was before me. Now at this point, many of the admirers of Jesus in this world might step off. Okay, I'm no longer on the Jesus bandwagon because I can't swallow this Jesus being really God thing. But even some who venture to recognize that Jesus was divine very well may stumble over the next thing that we're going to talk about. Because we're going to go here to the first part of John's comment where he talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And that's where we're going to dedicate the balance of our time this morning. Number two, John wants us to behold the supreme sacrifice of Christ. John wants us to behold the supreme sacrifice of Christ. The sacrificial mission of Christ is summed up in one beautiful and breathtaking phrase. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. This statement by John is worthy of one million sermons and more. There is so much we could digest just from this one phrase if we were to spend time with heavy meditation upon this phrase. We could spend day after day after day meditating upon it. And I encourage you in your own walk to meditate upon this phrase. Because it's more than we can do today. Today I kind of feel like the sermon today is like a platter. And it's too small a dish to handle the meat of this phrase. That's how I feel. Which is very difficult to feel that way. What I'm doing this morning is way too small. This phrase is powerful. It's immense. It's amazing. It's glorious. There's a story. I don't know if it's, it's, if it's true or not. It, it was recorded as being true. And we'll find out in heaven. But there's a story that Spurgeon was, was once doing a sound check in a new meeting hall because they had to before they built the tabernacle there in London, they had to meet in some rented meeting halls because the, the people coming to hear Spurgeon preach were so many. So he goes into this building and is doing a sound check. Now, not with 
with electronic equipment. They just want to see how far his voice would carry in the building. So he gets in and they say, say, say something. So he stands there and goes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can only imagine how booming that was from Spurgeon's voice. All right? Boom. And the story goes that a man who was working in the rafters began to weep and repented of his sins on the spot and gave his life to Christ. Just from hearing this phrase, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. J.C. Ryle says that all the stars in heaven are bright and beautiful. And yet one star exceedeth another in glory. So also all the texts of Scripture are inspired and profitable. And yet some texts are richer than others. Of some texts, the verse before us is preeminently, of such texts, I'm sorry, the verse before us is preeminently one of those. Never has there been a fuller testimony born to Christ upon the earth than that which is born here by John the Baptist. So this is where we'll hang out the rest of the day. What does this mean, Lamb of God? Well, to this day, there are some scholars who, oftentimes trusting their own wisdom more than the Word of God, sit around and debate, why on earth John called Jesus the Lamb of God? Because, after all, the Apostle John doesn't go on to explain here exactly what John the Baptist means. But those Jews who are hearing John say this, who are very familiar with their Old Testament, and we who sit here and know the Old Testament testimony, we should have no doubt. It leaves us with no doubt, for it speaks clearly of the necessity of lambs to be sacrificed for the appeasing of God's judgment and the remission of sins. The need for animal sacrifice to appeal to God for the remission of one's sins and the removal of his wrath is alluded to as early on in Scripture as Genesis. But the first manifest reference to a sacrificial lamb comes in Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Now, if you know the story, it's Abraham and his son Isaac. And God has come to Abraham and has told him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And so Abraham gathers up the materials for the sacrifice, the wood, and he has the fire, and they begin to walk up the mountain. And Isaac asks his father a question. Verse 7 of Genesis 22. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said to him, Here I am, son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Where is the lamb? That question hovers over the entire Old Testament. Where is the lamb? And the the words God will provide for himself the lamb is the promise hovering over the Old Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, awaiting fulfillment. For every true, God-fearing, faithful Jew looking for the fulfillment of Messianic promises that had been promised from Genesis 3.15 and onward, they knew, as Hebrews 10.4 testifies, that the blood of mere animals such as bulls and goats and even lambs was totally insufficient. So every Old Testament saint asked the question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Hoping that God would provide a better sacrifice. 
trusting God's word that he would provide for himself a lamb. There are many who know about Jesus, who believe in something about Jesus, but most in this world do not see truly who he is. They're like the Pharisees, who though Jesus was in their presence, as John said, they could not see him. The world must behold the Lamb. They need to see that Christ is the Lamb of God. So let us behold the Lamb provided by God the Father. Where is the Lamb? First of all, let us behold the spotless Lamb of God. Let us behold the spotless Lamb of God. We've already seen that John felt himself unworthy to untie the straps of Jesus' sandals because of Jesus' moral superiority. But Jesus was much more than just a good man. He was and is the perfect man. John didn't even know the extent of Jesus' glorious uh, perfection until after Jesus' baptism. Now, it's very possible that John the Baptist and Jesus grew up together, at least knowing each other. They were cousins. Mary and Elizabeth, we know, were close. So perhaps John had witnessed Jesus and saw that he was always good. I mean, brothers and sisters, or maybe you have cousins. Have you ever, have you ever had that brother or sister that's always good? They never get in trouble, and it just makes you so mad. Okay, can you imagine being Jesus' brother or cousin? So here's Jesus. John grew up with him. He never did anything wrong or bad. And so John knew from that standpoint that he was unworthy to untie Jesus' sandals. He said so. Jesus comes to be baptized. John says, I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals. I should be baptized by you. But the scriptures tell us here that John did not know fully who Jesus was until he saw the Spirit descend upon him. He says, I, was, I didn't know. God told me, he on whom thy Spirit descends and remains, he's the Son of God. So John didn't even fully understand who Jesus was until after that baptism. The Spirit descends and then, whoa. Not only is he a really good guy who I don't deserve to untie his sandals, he is the son of the living God. God himself made flesh. And then John knew really how important and perfect this man was. John says, I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. With that truth of who Jesus is, John was able to declare him to be the lamb of God. Any good Jew knew that lambs that were used for sacrifices were only, the only lambs that could be used for sacrifices were lambs that were spotless, that were without any blemish. My friends, Jesus must be more to you than just a good man. He must be more than a philosopher and good moral teacher, more than a good moral example to follow. He must be the spotless lamb. He must be sinless and perfect and totally and absolutely righteous before God the Father. Scripture leaves us no doubt that Jesus was the perfect son and his perfection was essential to his mission. 1 John 3, 5. This is again John the Apostle speaking and this is what he says. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him... There is no sin. Only spotless lambs were acceptable sacrifices. And the only way Jesus can be your Savior is if he was sinless. Otherwise, you're still dead in your sins because sin has not been defeated. The sinless, 
perfection of Christ was demonstrated, as we've already seen in the temptations, and must be fully believed. For he came to be tempted in every way as we are, yet to be without sin. I had a friend of mine, this was years ago when I was in college, who claimed to be a Christian and went to church with all of us. But we got in this repetitive argument about the sinless nature of Christ. He said, I don't think Jesus was perfect. I think he was good and we should follow his example. We should be Christians and do what he did and love one another and love God. And he was highly offended with one of my other friends said, well, you're not a Christian then. Oh man, he got mad. But my friend was right. If you don't embrace Christ as a sinless, spotless perfection, perfect man, perfect lamb who died in your place, there, there's no, you're not believing in a Christ that can save you. Jesus was the God-man, God in the flesh, and thus he was holy. Because of the virgin birth, he had no original sin and no active sinful nature. So Jesus can therefore say in John 8, verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? And not have to worry about somebody finding something. If any of us stands up and says, who in here can convict me of sin? We're in trouble. We may on the outside look good, but we've got closets. And those closets have skeletons, and those skeletons like to speak. That's why we don't pin our hopes on these politicians who get up and talk about their perfection. We know it'll come out something. When they were in first grade, they stole somebody's coloring pad or something, right? But Jesus, he said, who convicts me of sin? And the answer was, no one has been able to convict Jesus of sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, according to the Apostle Peter. Lambs had to be spotless, and lambs were used to stand in the place of sinners. So the second thing I want us to see here is to behold the substitutionary lamb of God. As we have seen in the temptations of Jesus, he came to identify with his people to be a substitute. When the average Jew of Jesus' day thought of lambs being offered in sacrifices, their thoughts would have probably immediately centered upon the Passover. The Passover. And in the celebration of the Passover and the the, the sacrificing of lambs for the Passover. You see, in Exodus 12, God had delivered his people, or was delivering his people from Egyptian slavery. And his final act of deliverance was to send the angel of death to slaughter, yes, slaughter, all the firstborn sons who lived in Egypt. The Israelites were given a way of escape from this wrathful horror, which was that each family was to take a one-year-old male lamb without any blemish on it and to kill it and spread its blood across the doorpost of their home so the angel would see the blood and pass over. The Jews were to remember and celebrate the Passover each year. They would remember that that lamb became a substitute. Death for death. This Passover pointed to a greater substitute and a greater lamb. You see, John makes it very clear in his gospel that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. In John 19, verse 4, 14, for example, it tells us that Jesus was handed over to be crucified at the sixth hour on the day of preparation for the Passover. That was the exact hour that the lambs were being sacrificed, the Passover lambs. That's when Jesus was taken to the altar to be sacrificed as well. 
Jesus' blood, therefore, is to be seen as being applied to the hearts of believers. And only those who have the blood of Jesus applied to their hearts will have the wrath of God pass over us. His death for ours. For the wages of sin is death. And God's justice demands death for sinners. And thus all who have not had the perfect spotless blood shed for their own sinful blood remain under the wrath of God. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. The only way the wrath of God can be removed is if the blood of Christ is applied. This is not the Jesus people like to talk about, though. So at this point, many people have stepped off all the way. It offends us. Why does it offend us? Why does it offend even people today? Why substitutionary, penal substitutionary atonement is even an issue of controversy in the church? I don't know because it's so clearly taught in Scripture, but it is. Why? Why is it such an issue? I think, number one, because we're prideful and we don't like a substitute. We want to get to heaven on our merit, on our terms, because we're prideful. To fall on our face and say, there's nothing good in me that deserves anything but wrath requires a tremendous amount of brokenness. You see, we're, we're prideful. Let's think about the word substitute here. Okay, I played soccer, and when you're playing the game of soccer, and you're out there, you don't like being substituted. No, coach, I'm doing a job. You may be stinking it up out there. You may, your team may be losing because you kicked the ball in the net three times on your own team. And you, but you still don't want to be substituted. No, coach, I'm good. I got it down now. That's our goal. That one's not. Leave me in, coach. And coach pulls you out. How many times have you seen these professional athletes who get paid millions of dollars whine when they get pulled out of a game? Go over and put their helmet down. You know, because we don't like being taken out of the game. And the substitutionary death of Christ takes us out of the saving game. You're taken out of the game. You can't do anything. You can't even get close to your own goal or their goal. You're kicking it in your own goal every time you touch the ball because you are totally depraved. You are a sinner. You need a substitute. We see, unfortunately, with our individualism, no problem that we can't somehow solve on our own. My friends, let me just say, this is why the doctrine of total depravity is so important. You see, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is just a few dominoes down from the doctrine of total depravity. If you believe that we are not totally depraved, and you remove that domino, you leave just a crack in the door for someone to say, well, maybe there's at least something good in me that made me, well, worthy. Some little goodness in me that made me able to do something that made God happy. The doctrine of total depravity must be embraced because the substitutionary atonement, it doesn't surprise me, let me just put it this way, it doesn't surprise me that churches that begin to reject total depravity 
never talk about substitutionary atonement. Have you noticed that? You don't talk about blood very much. We don't talk about that gory stuff. Well, you don't talk about blood when you don't realize you need blood. I'm just going to ignore the blood. It's offensive to non-believers who may want to visit. You need the blood. They need the blood. They need to hear about the blood. They need to know that they are sinners. They deserve the wrath of God. They've got to hear it. We have no hope in and of ourselves. We have to have a substitute. Death for our death. For, he, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a substitution. Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's a substitution. 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is a substitution. Propitiation means that God's wrath has been appeased. His justice has been satisfied. If and only if you are in Christ, you've placed your faith in Christ. If that is true, then you have been passed over because of Christ. The Lamb of God's own blood has been applied to you and has cleansed you of your sin. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's very little talk of substitutionary atonement in the church today. It saddens me and it weakens churches. It detracts from the glory of Christ and it guts the gospel. It just guts the gospel. I think the reason we don't like it is because we don't like to embrace the horror of what happens to lambs who are sacrificed, which is why we must behold the next thing. Behold the slaughtered lamb of God. Lambs were raised in Israel to be slaughtered. The sacrifice involved a lot of blood. It was a gory death. He came to be slaughtered. You say, well, that's rather gruesome. And rather savage language for our day today. And I say, yes, it is. It's very gruesome. Again, penal substitutionary atonement is offensive to many. And many today cringe from language like slaughtered. Revelation 5, 10, 5, 11. I'll read it here in a second. But what I want to say is this. If, if you're cringing now, you're going to cringe in heaven. Well, actually, if you're cringing from it now, you may not be going to heaven. Revelation 5 says this. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And the ESV translators have given us a little bit easier word there, slain. For whatever reason, slain sounds better than slaughtered, but the word actually in the Greek is slaughtered. It's schlotzo. It's actually where we get our word from. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So if you're cringing from it now, it's what we're going to be singing in heaven. Why so much blood? Why such gory language? It's because sin is that serious, friends. 
Sin is that offensive to God. We need to hate sin that much. Yes, it should cause us to cringe. Blood, slaughter. That should help us to realize how much we should hate our sin. But I'm afraid instead of some hating their sin, others want to get rid of the teaching. Let's just don't talk about that. It's too savage for the modern world. You see, there's one stream in the church right now that has said repeatedly that substitutionary atonement should be rejected because it's the same thing as cosmic child abuse. They would say that God is abusing his own son by doing what happened on the cross. And therefore, that can't be true. It can't be real. Let's don't believe it. Let's don't talk about it. It's cosmic child abuse. A person that would say that doesn't understand the seriousness of sin. You see, Jesus didn't show up on the scene and just say, okay, I'm going to make some declaration that whoever believes in me, you're pardoned, you're free. Don't worry about your sin anymore. I'm just going to declare it. I'm going to speak it. I'm God after all. I'm going to speak it. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. Just love one another. Be like me. He doesn't come on the scene and make a declaration of forgiven sins. He comes on the scene and is slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins. Sins can only be forgiven by the remission, by, by, by the, the spilling of blood. It's the only way sin can be taken away. That's how serious sins are. It says here that he is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Again, the language here is hard for us to grasp. This phrase here, takes away. It's actually translated in many other places, even in the New Testament, as bear. To bear the sins of the world, I believe, would be a better translation here. And I also think it would be in line better with Isaiah 53. Rarely do I ever disagree with the ESV's translation, but in this case I do. I believe it should say, who bears the sin of the world, because the phrase actually means that. To take away sin means to take it upon oneself. He took it up. If you go, go do a concordance search. If you've got a, if you've got a, a Greek concordance, go do a search and you can, you'll see here that many times it's translated as take up or to bear upon oneself. And so that's the image here. Jesus didn't just make some proclamation. He took sins upon himself. He bore them. He bore the wrath of God. And the bloody gore of the cross makes it plain for us to see that the holiness of our God is so amazing and glorious that he hates sin that much. That's how costly sin is. God cannot just wink at sin and say, okay, you're forgiven. God must punish sin with a wrath that demonstrates how infinitely offensive sin is to an infinitely holy God. And that's why hell is a very real place as well. If we make light of the language used to describe how God deals with sin, it'll lead us to make light of sin. If you want to get rid of the blood language, you'll get rid of the seriousness of sin. I mentioned earlier in the class that the church has winked at other sins. There's certain sins that we really, really are upset about today in our society, but I think that part of the reason we have no authority in our culture today to speak into the issues of our culture is because we've winked at other sins that we consider to be lesser sins. And I think the reason we consider them to be lesser sins is because we got our eyes off of the blood. 
The cross wasn't necessary just because of the big sins. Abortion, homosexuality. It was necessary for the other sins that we don't consider that big a deal. Like divorce. Like disobedient children. Doesn't matter how we categorize the sin. Even the smallest sin required a bloody death on the cross because one sin is infinitely offensive to a perfect and holy God. We need to be horrified by sin. So when you think of a lamb being slaughtered and the blood and the gore, I want you to be horrified by it so that you'll be horrified by sin. I want you to be horrified by sin. I want me to be horrified by sin, not just offended by it. Don't just be offended by sin. Be horrified by it. Because a lamb, perfect lamb, had to be slaughtered because of it. Jesus came to be slaughtered. It was his mission. It was the Father's mission. We read in Isaiah 53 uh, earlier today in our service. Later on it says in that passage, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And John 10 says, no one takes it from me. Jesus speaking of his own life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. He went to the slaughtering table on his own accord. Why? He went to the slaughtering table on his own accord because he came to save sinners. So behold the saving Lamb of God. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He has sheep to save. Therefore, he is the saving lamb of God. The mission of the spotless lamb was to be slaughtered as a substitute in order to save many. 1 Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You were ransomed, you were rescued from the wrath of God. The wrath of God was poured out on him instead. He's the one who bore our griefs. He's the one who carried our sorrows. And the Lord, according to Isaiah 53 that we read earlier, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The iniquity of us all. John says that he takes away the sin of the world. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean that every single person who's ever walked the face of this earth has had their sin taken away? Well, it can't mean that. Because Scripture clearly teaches that not all people are saved. Universalism teaches that all people will be saved, but universalism is heretical. It's unbiblical. Matter of fact, John in this very gospel teaches over and over again that one must believe, one must confess his sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But then in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So world must mean something other than every single human being who ever lived. What is it then? Well, what John is proclaiming here is a pretty radical notion for the Jews who are listening to him. 
that God was now shattering all national and ethnic and racial barriers. For this final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, was for all people from all corners of the earth. God was now, in effect, saying and putting forth His Son as a sacrifice to save people from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and every language. All from any of those nations, from any part of the world, who now call upon the name of the Lord, who cast themselves on Him in faith, all who believe in Him will be saved. That's the world. And that's how we must understand the world in other texts, like what the Apostle John says in in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation. Again, that's the appeasement of God's wrath. We've got to understand what propitiation is. It's the appeasement of God's wrath. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That can't mean everybody, or else everybody be going to heaven, because the propitiation is the setting aside of God's wrath. So what is the world again? Well, John's already spoken of the world. He says that it's every tribe, tongue, people, and language. Revelation 7, 9, also written by John. Let's just stick with John today. The Apostle John says this. And, I, and this, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the world. Every single ethnic group, every single tribe, every single tongue standing before the Lamb proclaiming His glory. Do you see the beautiful widening scope of the application of a lamb's death in Scripture? We start with Isaac in Genesis. God provided the lamb, in that case, even though it was pointing to a greater lamb, for an individual, for Isaac. And then there's Passover. Each family had to have a lamb to, so that the wrath of God could pass over each family. And then there was the daily atonement. You see, Scripture's called for them to daily bring a a, a lamb in the morning and the evening and slaughter it, the priests were to do this for the nation. So then we see the nation of Israel. And now the perfect lamb of God is on the scene, better than all the sacrifices that went before him. And now the scope is the world. It's beautiful. So Isaac's question, where is the lamb, has been answered. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Believer, behold him. Meditate upon these truths. Meditate upon what he has accomplished. Believer, call on others to behold. Be like John the Baptist. We now are in that courtroom. We are the witnesses. And we are to be saying, behold the Lamb of God. To our neighbors. To our friends. That's our task is to point others' eyes to Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ in a very real way, there was once an, a, an official from Ethiopia. He's riding his chariot. And he had visited Jerusalem for some religious purposes. And on his way home, he was reading Isaiah 53. 
Isaiah 53, the passage we read earlier. And he reads about this, the transgressions being placed upon this one who is like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as he read those words, God sent him an evangelist who was able to help him understand these words about Jesus. And when he heard what that was about, and he heard what Jesus had done, he believed and he was saved and he wanted to be baptized right there at that moment. This man from Africa, from a place as Ethiopia was known at that time, it was called, it was nicknamed, the end of the earth. This man who was from the ends of the earth heard the gospel and was transformed by the saving grace of God. The Lamb of God had been slain for him too. Friend, I ask you to repent of your sins and believe. This is the gospel. You see, in Revelation 13, we are told that God has a book. This book was written before the foundation of the world. And the name of this book is the book of life of the Lamb who is slain. And those whose names are in that book will live forever and will behold the Lamb of God and the glory of the Lamb forever and ever and ever. But those whose names are not in this book will perish. Who's in? Who's out? All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon his name today. The second time that John, in verse 36, the second time he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Scriptures tell us that that his two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. It had its effect, didn't it? My friends, behold the Lamb of God. Will you follow the Lamb today? Will you follow the Lamb? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And let's pray and conclude with a song about the great glory and worth of our Lamb.